UVA wrapped up spring football with its spring game Saturday, while big names are coming and going in ACC basketball, and the top name in the NCAA is ready to move on. All that and more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 81 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year, and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you, sir? I'm great, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. And, and David, the big news uh, of the week at the NCA at the national level is that President Mark Emmert will be retiring uh, no later than 2023. Emmert started the job back in 2010, certainly <laughs> headed the organization at, at a most tumultuous time when you consider uh, NIL and the transfer portal and some of the changes that have occurred. What do we make of his tenure as we look back on it? Well, first of all, Mike, it it's so NCAA. What time did the news drop last night? <laughs> you know, a- after six, right? It missed the news cycle, didn't they? Yeah, in, in that range, it, it wasn't quite as bad as about a year ago when at the bottom of a press release, yeah. again, after five or six o'clock, they announced Mark Emmert's contract extension, which really sent people off the rails. I think last night's news was much more fondly met, which I think probably speaks to uh, our evaluation of his tenure. It was uh, quite, as you said, tumultuous, and uh, President Emmert lacked vision, I think it is fair to say. He lacked communication skills, and he never really connected with the various constituents uh, in the NCAA. It's a it's a brutally difficult job, but one that he performed quite poorly. Yeah, it, it's a, it seems like a terrible position, and maybe he was also a terrible fit, which is not the combination you want there. So is there somebody out there, David, and I don't mean a name, but is there somebody who can have strength in that position, or is it just designed to kind of be the whipping boy of the president's? Mike, I think so much hinges on what the NCAA is going to look like. It's it's very structure in the coming years and decades, and that's something none of us knows. I mean, there is a transformation committee sitting as, as we speak. Uh, Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, is the chair of that committee. Jim Phillips, the ACC commish, sits on that panel. What are they going to come up with? Are the Power Five going to break away just for football? Are they going to break away for all sports? You know, how's that going to, how how would that group then govern NIL and transfers? Are they going to collectively bargain? These are all great unknowns. And given all that, you know, what does the president of the NCAA, <clears throat> what can he or she aspire to do? Uh, I, I think it's it's going to be a really hard sell for, for candidates. Although, you know, you, you mentioned what are they looking for? It's got to be someone with some credibility with the athletic side of the house, which Emmert never 
had. I mean, I don't think it can be just another university president who's disinterested in sports and hasn't been actively involved on his or her campus. Yeah, you know, you, you've got to come in, like you said, with that credibility and some strength, right? Because there is certainly limits to what you can do in that job anyway. You're at the mercy, really, of your constituents. It's kind of a thankless job. In some ways, you're paid to essentially be the lightning rod for <laughs> uh, policy decisions. Uh, now, you're paid well, so so certainly I, I would sign up for it if, if they came calling. But um, I do think somebody that has a little more oomph, for lack of a better term, um, is maybe going to be be central to, to that next hire because certainly the presidents don't want somebody who um, is going to tell them the way it'll be, and that's not the way it'll unfold, but somebody who can deliver whatever the message is and whatever the direction is with a little more force, um, I think that would help perception, which we've talked about on this podcast so many times. Perception is such a big part of things in the world of, of college athletics. And um, the perception of Mark Emmert w- was not a positive one. It was not. M- maybe, Mike, the word we're looking for is gravitas. Yeah, that's a great word for it, right? Somebody that when they're, they stand up and say something, they've got the history, the credibility, the the way they deliver the message. Um you know, they can sell it. <laughs> and, and and that's something that hasn't been happening, right? The NCAA's vision, um, like you said, it kind of feels rudderless. It feels like they lack vision. Um, and maybe that's the case, or maybe it's poor messaging and, and poor delivery. Uh, maybe it's a combination. But um, with everything that's changing, a stronger voice, I think, would be welcome uh, in that chair. Agreed. And I'll tell you what would not hurt is a law background. <laughs> I mean, you're right. And there's nowhere in college athletics right now where it would hurt to have that background. Yeah. I mean, if, uh, I would want my AD to, to, to be well-versed in, in, in legal matters, if not have having gone to, to, to law school. Uh, but certainly in, in this job with everything swirling around in the wake of the Alston case and it, you know, we, we used the phrase earlier. Will there be collective bargaining? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows what what the future holds? But being well versed on those topics is going to be essential. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into it later in today's show. But it's also a heck of a time to be a compliance director, isn't it? I mean, that <laughs> is <laughs> you're you're the sheriff in the town that just was founded out in the wild west. If if you're a compliance director and um, that's, that's just wild times as well. Well, David, let's get into to some of what we saw Saturday at sure. Virginia at Scott Stadium. You and I were both there uh, for the Cavaliers. I'll say annual spring game, but it's been a little while, and it's certainly been an even longer while, I think, since Al Groh, uh, since they actually played a game format. David, what was your, your kind of impression of, of the day itself before we get into the X's and O's? Well, first of all, God bless Tony Elliott for having numbers on the jerseys. Isn't that nice? <laughs> so we can actually tell who was <laughs> throwing, catching, running, tackling, all of the above. So that that was very nice. I mean, the atmosphere was was fine. Virginia's not going to draw 25-30,000 to a spring game. It's not that type of event to UVA faithful, but it was very kid friendly. I was, I was texting with my wife saying, gee, you know, I should have brought you and Laura up here. She'd had a blast in all the bounce houses and such. Yep. 
Uh, they they were all over the place, not only on the concourse, but pregame d- down on the field. So that was really cool. Yeah, I think that's the right approach because young fans who grow up going to the spring game yeah. become old fans who go to the spring game and fans who bring their family to the spring game. Um, it certainly feels like there's been two decades of missed opportunity to, to grow the event, maybe. Uh, but and at the end of the day, it all comes back to what? It comes back to winning, yes. right? If Tony Elliott puts a good product on the field, more people will want to come watch the spring game. If not, they won't. It's that simple. But yeah, I thought they did a nice job. At, um, I actually used it as a lead in my story that the young fans really enjoyed the, the autograph session, autograph session yeah. after, which was really cool. Um, you mentioned the pregame stuff with the um, different, you know, throwing footballs and bounce houses and run the 40 on the field. And um, yeah, I, I think you've got to do some of that right now because I mean, bluntly I, UVA football doesn't sell itself, right? Clemson where Tony Elliott came from sells itself, right? Yes. You don't even have to put up a, a poster or stick up flyers. People are going to, people probably show up there at Tiger stadium every Saturday, just in case something's <laughs> happening because that's how hungry they are for Clemson football. And as you said, UVA is not quite there, but on the field, we saw some things that, that maybe make us think, okay, things are going in the right direction. David, what stood out most to you from the spring game itself? I think there were a couple things, Mike, uh, on the, on the offensive side, you know, clearly they were beyond limited because of the numbers game, up front with the offensive line. I mean, poor Jonathan Leach and Charlie Patterson. I mean, they're probably still in the massage area of the training room, getting the kinks worked out. Cause I mean, they were going both ways, you know, and they're putting pennies on for one team. And, you know, that's, that's a tough ask for an offensive lineman to be playing for both teams. You know, we all fancied ourselves the steady quarterback on the sandlot. So Brennan Armstrong had it, had a great, what he threw it 43 times <clears throat> there, there in the first half. But how about the tight ends, you know, in, in that first half, Grant Mish and Sackett Wood, what, seven catches for over a hundred yards combined. I thought that was kind of striking. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, Tony Elliott, because I asked about the, the lack of pop from the offense. This is an offense that a year ago, you, you couldn't run to the bathroom, right? Because at any moment, <laughs> it might hit a 70-yard touchdown pass. And, um, you know, three-play drives were pretty common. And, um, you know, obviously it was a record-setting offensive attack. But when I asked Tony Elliott, he said, I'm not worried. Those plays are coming. Those plays will be there. This was a case of Rudzinski, John Rudzinski's defense – uh, basically wasn't going to give up big plays in the spring game, which is a great sign, and we'll get into yeah. that. Uh, so Brennan Armstrong and the offense took what was there, and a lot of it was underneath routes, and a lot of it was throws into the seams to the tight ends, like you mentioned. So um, to me, it was surprising in a sense that we didn't see the display that, that, that UVA offense was a year ago, but when you get into the nitty-gritty of it, the fact that they wanted to work on the run game they wanted to feature uh, Ahmad Faustin and um, Mike Hollins and, and try to get that traditional run game established. It kind of makes sense the, the way we saw it play out. No, I think it, it makes perfect sense. And you mentioned Mike Hollins and, and Faustin and, uh, you know, we, we, we saw Ronnie Walker on, on crutches on, on the sideline. But yeah, you know, there in the in the second half, the 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 first play, Paris Jones, who we hadn't heard a lot about during spring because he had been nicked up, and that was impressive. Granted, against 
second team defense, but he had a nice little juke there near near the line of scrimmage to get to the next level. And the next thing you know, he's seventy five yards down the field in the end zone. Yeah, and and certainly that has been lacking in the run game. Uh, we've seen it from Perkins. We've seen it from Armstrong, both from the quarterback position. Uh, but there certainly was a commitment uh, to run the football and a commitment to. Um, you know, Tony Elliott said, you know, this might be an offense that throws it 20 yards and then takes it the other 20, um, as opposed to 40 in the air. And, and he said, Hey, it's, it's, you know, half a dozen of one, six of the other, right? It, it makes no difference to him as long as they're getting that kind of chunk yardage. What about the other side of the ball, David, what did we see? And, and are we encouraged? I was encouraged Mike by the lack of missed tackles. <laughs> I thought they were very sure in open space and particularly in the secondary. I thought that was, was very in there. And there were some nice pass breakups. Cohen King had one there on the second series of the game in the end zone on a Brennan Armstrong uh, pass. You know, Jalen Baker had a, had a pick off of a uh, tip who had the tip. I'm, I'm blanking on. I think that was Antonio Clary. Yes. Safety. Yes, Clary had the tip, and then uh, Aiden Ryan just jarred the heck out of Sackett Wood on that one play uh, to to break up a pass. So I thought all that was encouraging. And then afterward, Tony Elliott sang the praises of his defensive line for its performance in the entirety of spring ball. Yeah, which is a very good sign as as they transition to – uh, still a three-four, but we'll talk about you know the bandit position, which is can be a defensive end, can be an outside backer. Um, Rosinski's scheme is very multiple in that regard, in that it can uh, transform with the personnel on the field, really, to how it's going to look. Uh, I thought Nick Jackson really stood out as more of a playmaker. I don't know if it's just me, but I, I've kind of viewed and Nick's been a great player for a couple of years now. Uh, you know, hundred tackle guy. But he's kind of always been that steady, he's going to make the plays. I thought he showed up a little bit in this one. I think he had a pair of sacks, yeah. uh, at least one tackle behind the line of scrimmage on, on a running play. I think he knocked down a ball. Um, but he showed up, I thought, more as as a playmaker, which uh, I think will be a nice thing. You know, guys have talked about this defense giving them a little more freedom to to run around and be aggressive and make plays. And I thought Nick Jackson really showed that. Agreed. And, you know, Mike, you mentioned him being a 100-tackle guy. He was the ACC's leading tackler in 2021, but he only made second-team all-conference. And I might argue, in fact, I would argue, that he was their second-best linebacker. I thought Noah Taylor was more effective last season, who he has since transferred to North Carolina. So I, I think Virginia does need more out of Nick Jackson, not necessarily more tackles, but more big plays as you were yeah. just describing. Yeah. In fact, I, I go back to Bronco Mendenhall said it once and I can't remember who he was speaking about, but he said, I need more impact plays. Yeah. Um, and that's what it is. It might've been Charles Snowden. It might've been Charles Snowden, his, his final year when he would come back and um, he was playing real well early, if I'm remembering correctly, but, Nothing impactful, not a yeah. ton of sacks or tackles for loss. He was always in the right place. Um, I think that's what they need from Nick Jackson is that impact. Uh, and, and I thought we saw a little bit of that in the spring game, which is a good sign. So, David, now that we've we've watched all that, um, still feel about the same about UVA football's outlook for, 
for this coming season? Do we feel better? Do we have more questions? What's the takeaway there? I still think six and six and bowl eligibility would be a success. I mean, I, I know that sounds counterintuitive given all that returns on, on offense and especially after hearing Tony Elliott compare favorably Dontavian Wicks to the crew of receivers he coached over a decade plus at Clemson. I mean, that is high praise indeed now. Um, you know, if Virginia can figure out a way to block it up front, then maybe this offense truly can carry the Cavaliers to a special season. But right now, you know, I think six and six, seven and five feels about right. Yeah. You know, the offensive skill is impressive. The commitment to the running game is encouraging. The lack of big plays given up by the defense is a good sign. I can't get past that offensive line. I just, mm-hmm. right. I mean, nothing can disrupt you uh, more quickly and more completely than just not being able to block. And I think about 20 years ago when I started my career and, you know, high school teams, if they didn't have five kids, they could throw out on the offensive line. I mean, they were barely functional. Um, and I look at this Virginia offensive line uh, and I worry a lot. And, I, and I'm and i not talking about depth. Like, obviously, depth is a huge problem, but I'm not sold on the quality of their starting five. I just, uh, it, it's going to be something to overcome. And, you know, Tony Elliott, to his credit, he addressed that in the post-spring game press conference, talked about, you know, having more sprint out passes and moving the pocket. So, it's not like they're going to be caught unaware, right? They, they know it's an issue, um, but it, it is a tough, tough spot to overcome a deficiency at. And uh, we'll see now off the field, David, I thought there's been some, some positive uh, momentum around this program. And, you know, you wrote about this anonymous donor with a record setting. What was it? $40 million? Gift? $40, $40 million bequest that um, th- this anonymous former athlete, has put into his or her will, meaning when this donor passes away, UVA will receive the $40 million. UVA Athletics uh, will receive the $40 million. So as Dirk Katzstra, the executive director of the Virginia Athletics Foundation, which is the fundraising arm for the department, as he explained it, there is no you know, target for this gift because they don't know when they're going to receive the money. They hope it's not going to be right away because they like this person. <laughs> and then they, they would prefer that he or she live for, for a while and, and, and hang around. So there's, there's no telling what the department's needs will be at that time. But what Katstra stressed, and I think makes sense <clears throat> to me, is that what they hope is that $40 million gift, just the, the magnitude of it, the generosity of it inspires other donors to do something more in the present. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is the kind of thing that galvanizes a, a donor base. Um, it also, it's something that you know is coming, right? So in your planning, that is out there. Um, I think that's got value too. Um, it's not like some of these projects that they've talked about where they will do this if they can find this. Well, they know at some point <laughs> there's going to be this infusion of cash and that'll be a good thing. Unrelated, David, 
I went out to, to one of the final spring practices before the spring game, and there was a big sign up touting the the inc the upcoming groundbreaking uh, for the new football facility. That makes it feel a bit more real, like it's coming soon. Uh, we're, we're hearing, right, in the coming weeks, they could break ground on that facility. That's a major step for this football program. Oh, extra large step, Mike. And it sounds like target occupancy is for the start of the 2024 season, which, you know, if if that can indeed happen, that's something Tony Elliott and his staff can recruit to and say to prospects, look, this is what we have <clears throat> on the way while conceding. And, and if, if you want to be transparent in recruiting, while conceding that what Virginia now has is substandard. And Mike, this goes back to more than six years ago in Bronco Mendenhall's introductory press conference. <laughs> yeah. This building was talked about then. In fact, one of the sale part of the sales pitch to Bronco Mendenhall was an artist's rendering of a football support complex that, in in part, drew him to UVA, and it was a source of frustration. I don't. I'm not conflating his resignation to the lack of this building. But there's no denying that as the years went on, the lack of progress on this building frustrated Bronco Mendenhall. Yeah, we, we talked about it at the time of, of his resignation <laughs> that did he pick up and quit because they didn't build the building? No, I don't think either of us think that. If a building was about to open, maybe this coming year instead, m- might that have been a reason for him to hang around for another year or two? Certainly, I, I could see that, but. Um, the biggest point, yeah, is that it's been a long time they've known they've needed this, uh, and now it, it at least feels like it's on the way. I'll be curious what Tony Elliott's involvement is, because if you spend any time at Clemson, and I got to go down and spend a couple days there doing a story on, on Cleveland Farrell uh, when he was playing there, their facility isn't <laughs> just top-notch. It's super cool. Right. Mm-hmm. They've got the golf simulator. They've got the mini golf course. Uh, they've got the slide. So if you're on the top level, you can slide down to, to the bottom level. Um, there's some fun twists there. I'll be curious if Tony Elliott pushes for for any of that energy in what UVA builds. I'm, he may push. <laughs> I have my doubts. It, it's a different culture, right? Yes. It, it wouldn't necessarily fit. Um Although I, I think there were some things there in terms of, um, you could argue, athlete wellness. Um, I remember oh, they, yeah. they, they showed me in the space. I mean, they had a, a nap area. So in other words, if you were had been cramming for a test and then you had practice in an hour, there was a little spot where they had bunk beds and the guys could go and, and take a nap. And um, the movie theater, which can certainly double as, as meeting rooms as well. Um, the golf simulator. There were some things there just to – to improve athlete health and, and mental health. And it's been such an issue and a topic lately that um, I think if Tony wanted to, he could push for some of that, some of those perks in there under, under that guys. Agreed. And, and I don't know that he would have to push for things that are targeting 
you know, student athlete welfare and mental health and such. That is a high priority for Carla Williams, the athletic director, and has been since she arrived. Would you think the slide in the mini golf might be a bit much? Yeah, I do. That's it. I enjoyed it. I, I got to go down the slide uh, when I was there. That was fun. Uh, Dabo offered me a putter because I, I, I didn't have a, a golf club for the mini golf course. I didn't have time, unfortunately, to take him up on that, but I thought that was very generous of, of him. Uh, it'll be fun to see what, what UVA can do, and it'll be fun to see what Tony Elliott and his staff can do when they're not at that massive disadvantage. Um, we heard it. You, you mentioned Noah Taylor earlier, and when I spoke to him for, for a story this offseason – he told me he was wowed by Carolina's facilities mm-hmm. and the idea that is this what other Division One ACC athletes enjoy because of how much better it was than the facilities at UVA. He said, you know, the doors kind of slid open and his eyes opened wide. So um, it's been a hindrance and it will be interesting to see when they get this done uh, what Tony Elliott can, can use it for. No doubt. Uh facilities don't win recruiting battles, but they can lose them. Absolutely. And we've heard it from athletes, right? And Mm -hmm. um, Noah was one of the more open about how bad things were at UVA. Usually we hear the other side, right? How I was wowed by what they have and and nobody mentions, but it's been pretty obvious for a long time that that UVA is lagging behind. They know that. Um, So that's more momentum. I did a story on, on Tony Elliott and, his kind of the way he's embraced some of the off the field stuff. Uh, David, that's been impressive because he, he told us uh, at a pre-spring game press conference, hey, one of the things he was learning from Dabo Sweeney at Clemson, it wasn't just about X's and O's and, and, and recruiting. Some of it was all the non-football stuff you got to do and how Dabo handled it. And, and I think early on, Tony Elliott gets high marks for the way he's handled that part of the job. Agreed. I think Brent Pride gets similarly high marks. Mm-hmm. At, at Virginia Tech. Uh, I don't think, Mike, you can hire a head coach these days without impressing upon them in no uncertain terms that this is part of the gig. And I think that their respective predecessors, Justin Fuente and Bronco Mendenhall, weren't as attuned to those parts of the job as they could have, should have been. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, cry, it, it may be the signature moment so far of his tenure, having <laughs> that snowball fight on the drill field, right? And, you know, we both laugh and it's fun and made for great. But I think it was an important moment. Um, it sent an important message. And the best thing about, you know, Brent Pry and I think Tony Elliott too is none of that stuff felt forced, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like, geez, coach, you should really head out to the drill field. I think the student, it was like, dude, our students are having a snowball fight on the drill field. I want to be out there in that. And right. that is an energy, right? That that when it's authentic, it's much more valuable. Uh, I think Elliot has it. I think Brent Pry has it. Um, and I think both of those programs will be well served by that energy. And they're, they're likable guys. And uh, when we're talking about likable guys, we transition pretty seamlessly to, to tech and men's basketball. Mike Young might be as as likable a guy as we work with. I think that's fair, David. Oh, no question. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a gem. He had a great relationship with Keve Aluma, who came yeah. with him from Wofford and really developed into a, a pro prospect. Uh, you know, it's it, even Mike Young will tell you that, you know, when, when Keve Aluma came with him, 
He didn't know exactly what to expect. He thought he'd be good. I think Mike thought 10 points, eight boards a night. Kevin Aluma turned into an elite player in the ACC. Now he's announced he's turning pro. Uh, what do we make of his decision, David? Not surprising. I mean, he's he's been a college basketball player for because because he, he he sat out the season mm-hmm. when he transferred from from Wofford. So he's he's been in college five years. I mean, it's it's time. And yes, he could have come back for his his COVID bonus year. Um, but no, he, he chose to move on. You know, he's been second team, all ACC, the number six vote getter in the balloting both years, you know, so close to, to making first team both seasons. And he's, he's been a gem for the Hokies, both on and off the floor. Yeah. He's been outstanding. He's an outstanding all around player, you know, the great passing. I don't see a part of his game that, he would have improved with another year, if that makes sense. Not that he wouldn't get a little better in everything, certainly. Yeah, that's guys do. But some guys you look at and you say, he's missing this, he's missing that. He needs to go back to college and show them he can do this or do that. I think Keve Aluma's game at this point is what it is. I think it's really good. I think in a lot of ways it might be more suited uh, for Europe. <laughs> uh, um, but but I certainly think he's got a chance as a pro and um, – the biggest thing is with everything going on, the trend of college athletics, if this is what he wants to do, uh, I think Tech got a lot out of Kevin Aluma and, and should be quite happy with the return on, on investment of uh, bringing him from Walford. Two NCAA tournaments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and an ACC championship. Yep. <laughs> you can't argue with that. No, and they're a most consistent player and a big part of the turnaround this year. Right. I mean, this was a team that yes. um, got we've co- covered this a lot, chronicled it a lot, but got off to such a bad start. And, and Aluma uh, and Justin Mutz, whose decision we're still waiting on, whether he'll be back. Uh, those two guys really set the tone of uh, not panicking. And, and I, I always remember Aluma telling me that it almost got annoying with Mike Young telling them, like, we're so close. We're so close. <laughs> and Aluma said it got to a point where he didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to be close. He wanted to win. But. Um, they stayed the course, and they end up winning the program's first ACC tournament championship. Uh, so, you know, yeah, the Kevin Aluma years, great years. Uh, what Mike Young was able to do with him, what what he did for the program. What do we think about Tech's roster without him, with the caveat that we're still waiting on a decision from Mutz? Well, we're still awaiting a decision from Justin Mutz, Mike. They just added this the same day that Kevin Aluma announced his departure. They added a transfer from Memphis, John Camden, 6'8", rail thin. I think he's barely over 200 pounds and was a top 30 prospect when he signed with Penny Hardaway's group. Now he played sparingly last season, maybe only a couple of games. He had injury issues, but he hit the portal and chose Tech over other Power Five programs, such as LSU. Uh, I've never seen him play, but I'm certainly going to be intrigued by his by his ranking, by his body type, what, what he brings. And then we still don't know about Tyrell Ward, mm-hmm. the small forward out of Dematha, who had originally committed to Xavier, and then Xavier had its coaching transition. 
and he put himself back on the market. And obviously he has a relationship with, with Mike Jones, the Hokies associate head coach. So what happens with Tyrell Ward? I think Virginia Tech is much more unsettled from a basketball roster composition than are their uh, rivals in Charlottesville. Yeah, that's a great point. We'll get to them next. It, it does feel like, hey, that's a roster that could still get better, um, could still get worse if Mutz leaves and uh, they don't bring anyone else in. It, it's going to be uh, another interesting offseason, as they all are in, in college sports right now. UVA on the flip side, uh, they're bringing back their top six stores, Kihei Clark, who we've talked so much about on this show. He's coming back. And now they added Ben Vanderplas, a, a guy who's Father played college basketball with Tony Bennett. I got the chance to talk to Ben after he committed, and it was interesting to hear. A lot of people, I think, thought this was a kind of fait accompli, right? Uh, oh, his dad played with Tony Bennett. Um, he's named after Tony and Dick Bennett. It, it, that's why he's Bennett Vanderplas. Uh, this was going to happen. This was a, a surefire thing. Ben told me, he had only met Tony one or two times mm-hmm. in his life before. The and one was in the handshake line, right? Well, yeah, one was at a camp at UVA, and the other was in the handshake line after Vanderplas scored 17 points to help Ohio knock UVA out of the first round of the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago. You and I were there for that game. So, yes, there was a deep tie with the family, great respect, but it was not a slam dunk that UVA was going to land this kid. He took a visit to Ohio State. He took a visit to hometown Wisconsin. Uh, He took a visit to Iowa State. Those are three really good programs. He considered them all. He ended up coming to Virginia. He said there were a ton of reasons, but yeah, Tony Bennett being impressed with him, that was at at the top of the list. What do we think he adds to to this Virginia team? Well, what, 14 points plus a game? He's a he's not a great three point shooter, but he's certainly a credible threat from out there. What was he? 34, 35% in, in that range. So he, he, he brings that brings some size, you know, there Tony Bennett is going to have a lot of pieces on both ends of the floor next season. I think clearly the Cavaliers are going to be in the discussion for the top, what three or four in the league along with Duke and Carolina and Florida state and Miami. Those to to me feel like the, the, the top of the heap right now. So, and if you're, if you're in that range and the league is going to be, we presume much better than a year ago, I think Virginia's the top 20 team. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. And it's going to be interesting to see, what Bennett does, because on the one hand, yeah, everybody's back, right? The top six scorers, uh, Jaden Gardner, Armand Franklin, all those guys. It's also going to be interesting, though, David, with a little more depth and a little more um, experience on that bench, what might he be able to do from a coaching standpoint in terms of UVA was pretty stuck. And, and yes, they improved as the year went on. They got to a point where they are playing good basketball. But there weren't a lot of chess moves that Tony Bennett could make personnel-wise. It was pretty limited. And then they went in with it, knew they had a short bench. It will be interesting to see. Vanderplas, and, and I'm not saying he is this guy, but he has a similar skill set as a Sam Hauser, a guy who could score at different levels. He can shoot from the outside. He can pass it despite being a bigger guy. Might make some matchup problems. Um, 
you know, we've seen what Jaden Gardner can do as an undersized power forward. Reese Beekman's game expanding. Uh, Caden Shedrick is coming along. All of these pieces, it feels like there might be a little more uh, versatility in the lineup uh, and mobility from that bench than we saw in this past season. I agree, Mike. And what it reminds me of is 2014, well, 2013-14 season. Virginia returned its top five scorers plus Malcolm Brogdon, who had redshirted the previous year with the foot injury. And they were a little undervalued in preseason. But what happens in 2014? They go 16-2 and in the league, win the ACC tournament in Greensboro, they're a number one regional seed, and they make the Sweet 16 for the first time since 1995. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly not a bad year to be compared to, right? <laughs> Very much not a bad year. It's uh, it's the most firepower they've brought back since yeah. the national title year, but there's a big gap there, right, between what's coming back and what came back that year. So I think your, your comparison is a better one in terms of, some depth, some experience, um, and maybe flying a little bit under the radar. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch, and um, it's going to be fun to see what Vanderplas can do. And, and that brings us to this week's edition of Who You Got. Thank you, Mike. Let's do a, a little different kind of Who You Got. Which player will have a bigger impact this coming season? Uh, ben Vanderplas at UVA or Kevialuma? On a pro roster. Let's start with uh, David. This seems like a pretty clear answer to, to me. I think Vanderplas at UVA is an instant impact player from season's tip to whenever that year ends in March, presumably in the NCAA tournament. I have no idea where Keve Aluma is going to play next year. Is he a reserve in on an NBA roster? Is he in the G League? Is he overseas? Is he going back and forth between the G League and the NBA? Not knowing that, I I go Ben Vanderplas all in here. Thank you, David. Mike? All right, well, for the sake of argument then, I'm going to say Keve Aluma, and here's why. I've been burned too many times underestimating what Keve Aluma will be, <laughs> what he can do, right? And I was very much at the camp of, oh, he'll, he's, a, he's a Wofford guy. He'll be a serviceable player, turned into a star. Then when he became that star, well, he's a guy that now teams are aware of him. He's not going to be able to keep doing it. He'll slide back to being a role player, still ends up being a, a star and consistent. Uh, I'm going to go with Keve Aluma here because I'm, I'm done undervaluing and underestimating him. Uh, <laughs> I do think if he ends up in Europe, my goodness, I, I think he, he can be just a perfect player out there with his all-around game. But I wouldn't I wouldn't sell him short uh, on playing here in the States. You mentioned with the G League, there's that mobility and that opportunity. And um, Keve Aluma is just a guy who I think given an opportunity will make the most of it. It's going to be fun to watch both of those guys play next season. Uh, a lot of coming and going on rosters. And David, it's not just UVA and Virginia Tech. It's throughout the ACC. Let's start at North Carolina, the last Whoa. ACC team to play this season. And when they come back next year for year two under Hubert Davis, 
David, they're going to look pretty darn similar, aren't they? All except the beard, right? <laughs> Which will be missed, certainly. <laughs> not, not only his, not only Brady Maddox's beard will be missed, but yes. that hair trigger release mm. that he has from, from three-point range. Mike, yes, everybody's coming back except Brady Maddox, but I, I will remind people that it was Brady Maddox who was North Carolina's most efficient and effective offensive player in the NCAA tournament. He and Caleb Love both scored 113 points in those six games. And whereas Love hit more spectacular shots, he also shot less, excuse me, less than 40% in the NCAA tournament. Manic was way over 50%, way over 40 from three. But more to your point, Love, R.J. Davis, Leaky Black, Armando Baycott, who there is not a better nucleus returning in the ACC and perhaps in the country. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when we were getting ready to start this basketball season, you and I had a conversation about, you know, John Shire versus Hubert Davis and, and, and their futures and, um, you know, just speculating, right, who would who would do what and, and who would fare well, who might struggle early, how things might go. Boy, if you had told me when Hubert Davis took the job that he would have two years with Baycott, Love, Davis, and Black, that is a great foundation to start to start your program. When I say start your program, I understand Carolina basketball has been around for a little while. But the Hubert Davis years, um, that's a really great place of guys who know you, guys you know, guys buying into your way of doing it. And boy, you got to imagine – Everybody is super bought in once you reach the championship game, and clearly that's the case since they're all coming back. Clearly, indeed. And that seems to be the motivation. You look at everyone's social media posts when they when they announce their return, they want to close the deal. You know, they're they're disappointed. Yeah, we, hey, we got to the final four. That's awesome. We beat Duke. We ended Coach K's career. All that, man, we lost to Kansas, and we're a little pissed. We're a little salty about it, and we want to go back and hang a banner. Yeah, and and they certainly, David, will have the pieces. I would imagine they'll be – you never know exactly how people are going to view the the incoming talent at places like Duke, but uh, you think Carolina's got to be a prohibitive favorite in the ACC, and uh, there will be other strong teams. The opposite happened right down the road, right at Durham. And, and not surprisingly, and, and, and not an indictment on John Shire, but all the Duke guys are leaving. Paolo mm-hmm. Bancaro, Mark Williams, A.J. Griffin, Wendell Moore, they've all announced their leaving. And Trevor, and have, and Trevor well, Keels. Now, those four all have announced their leaving and signed with an agent. Keels has not signed with an agent. So there's an outside chance, I believe, he can come back. Uh, but that's a lot of talent, and Duke's used to it. But conversely to what we just talked about with Hubert Davis, John Shire is is starting from scratch, which in some ways was what Mike Krzyzewski wanted to avoid. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got Jeremy Roach, who will re- return next season. And Roach played a huge role mm-hmm. in Duke's run to the Final Four uh, with, with some clutch shooting and, and some good on-the-ball defense. But the other departures that you mentioned put in – awfully large burden or responsibility 
on the incoming recruits. There's there's six of them now. And I'm sitting here looking at the list of them, and four of them are five-star dudes, led by Derek Lively, the big 6'11 center out of Pennsylvania. So once again, it will be a matter of just how far can a group of freshmen carry a team? Yeah, that was Mike Krzyzewski's great succession plan, right? It was not necessarily about who's in the program. It was about recruiting, having that continuity, and being able to, to make sure that that first group of freshmen that John Shire was going to lean on was going to be up to Duke standards, right? No step back in the recruiting, no step back in the kind of players Shashevsky was bringing in to the first group Shire will coach. That is still a tall ask for a first-time head coach. Uh, I don't know that Mike Krzyzewski or John Calipari or any of those guys get enough credit for how quickly they blend and bring along these McDonald's All-Americans. It's, it's not about talent, how quickly they can put it together in, in their great years. That's what John Shire is going to be asked to do in year one as the big whistle. He will be. And Mike, he's already got a ridiculous start on year two recruiting. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got four commits for the class of 23 already. And oh, here's a surprise. They're all really good. (laughs) I mean, the the one and done thing is going to continue to be the model for Duke. And that, that was... Again, Shashevsky's plan and how he set this up. Um, but it is a different style of coaching, and certainly it's one John Shire's been around because it's not new at Duke. But it is a different challenge for, for a coach and for a young uh, first-time head coach to be able to win with that kind of young and experienced talent that hasn't been together, as opposed to what Hubert Davis is going to be doing, which is going to be trying to win with, I think, very good talent, right? Top-notch talent but also guys who are experienced, guys who have been through the battles, and maybe more importantly, have been through the battles together. Together, there yeah. you go. I mean, you go back to Jim Laranega's Mason run or, or Shock and VCU. And not that those guys weren't talented. Those were good rosters. But they had played a lot of basketball, and they had played a lot of basketball together, which just speeds up everything, tightens everything, improves everything, uh, improves a coach's ability in game, right? How many times have we heard coaches talk about you got veterans on the field or in the court, uh, wherever you are, basketball, football, you can make changes on the fly a little easier. You try to do it with five freshmen who've never played together. Boy, it's hard to change on the fly. Isn't it? hundred percent. And that's, that's what made UVA's 2019 national championship mm-hmm. squad. So good. Those guys, had been in an awful lot of tight spots together. They trusted one another. And that's, that's invaluable. Yeah. You can also win with new faces, and that's part of what Miami's trying to do. They picked up a, a commitment from a transfer guard from K-State. And David, less Nigel about... Pack. Less about Nigel Pack and his skills. Very good player. And I don't mean to... but. His news was his NIL deal. And we use the term NIL. I'm not sure exactly what he's endorsing or sponsoring, but $800,000 over two years plus a car from Life Wallet. Uh, David, what do what are we make of uh, Miami's, for lack of a better term, free agent signing of PAC? Not only Nigel PAC, Mike, 
I mean, the Canes just picked up another transfer in Norshad Ormier, mm-hmm. who's the Sun Belt Player of the Year at Arkansas State. I mean, he averaged 17 9 and 12 2 last year. I mean, the, the, the Canes, just like a year ago, are bringing in some really good transfers. But to, to your question about pack, you know what I'm interested in? And, and I'll never know and will never know. I'd really like to see the fine print on that deal of his. What, if anything, besides playing basketball, is required of Nigel Pack to get that money? Right. And that's is, the big question, right? Yeah. Now. Is it is it strictly pay for play? Is is that what this is? Because if it is, it's 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 not going to last long. That model will not work. There's going to have to be some kind of collective bargaining and some kind of standards for all the schools to operate with, or it, it, the whole thing's going to collapse. Sure. And we've seen NIL, and, and I don't mean to get preachy when I say done right, but we, we've seen NIL done the way it was intended. Um, right, you know, right at Virginia Tech with, with their deal, I think it's at Mission Barbecue that sponsors the offensive line. Oh, yeah. Uh, so and and the guys, you know, they get to eat there, uh, and then they get to put out on, on their Twitter feed and their social feeds, kind of an endorsement of, of the restaurant, and that, that's what NIL is is supposed to be, right? It's you, because of who you are, you can you profit from your name, your image, and your likeness. And we keep talking about that's it, not the way it's gone. And it, it, and it, David, I think we expected because it wasn't regulated, and, and we kind of brings us back to Mark Emmert and where we started today, but. Um, I think we expected it to get here. I don't know if I expected it to go this way so quickly, right? It was like, okay, you can profit from your name, image, and likeness. Go endorse products. 48 hours later, we're basically getting free agent contracts. I'm a little surprised how quickly it brazenly got to that point. The key word there being brazenly. Right. Right. I mean, when's the last time you saw a recruiting commitment announced by his essentially his endorsement attorney. I mean, that's how all this broke. Yeah. And, and that to me is without even the um, hint or disguise of legitimate NIL, right? It didn't say PAC will now be the spokesman for the national mm-hmm. spokesman for the Florida spokesman for uh, nothing. There was no mention of, is there any NIL element in this deal? Maybe there is. We don't know, but there was no mention or promotion of that. It was just like a free agent signing, eight hundred thousand, two years, and a car. Yeah, and I Mike, mean, what what happens if he gets injured? What happens mm-hmm. if he doesn't play well? What happens? Why? Because the guy who put this together is a Miami booster mm-hmm. who donate he donates to the athletic department. And who's talked about building a, you know, a, a stadium, a football stadium for the Kings. What happens if Jim Laranaga feels like he needs to discipline Nigel Pack or sit him down for a poor play? Right. What happens then? Yeah, it's uh, uh, it, it can it could create some very interesting dynamics and, in Coral Gables. And we've seen it. Right. But we've seen it in the pros. 
You have an owner who shelled out a ton of money for a free agent quarterback or running back. I want to make sure he plays. Why isn't he getting the ball? It hasn't been a thing in college, right? It's never been a thing, and it's going to be. And David, and, and you know, you don't want to put um, words in anybody's mouth, but we saw Jay Wright walk away at Villanova. Uh, certainly other coaches have talked about, Bronco Mendenhall talked about some of the direction. I, I think there's a, a legitimate unease from coaches right now about some of those questions you just asked. Oh, oh, there's it is widespread, it is rampant unease, and, and and not just among coaches. What did Whit Babcock say to us, Mike, yep. in the press box at the spring game, as we were talking about the 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 payments to athletes for their academic. Uh, in essence, eligibility, but but more to the point, NIL deals, he said, I don't think this is sustainable, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> well, an- another day is not that far away. Yeah, I think he's right about it not being sustainable. I think he's wrong about being a story for another day. I think that was just a turn of phrase. I think it's a story for right now. And David, you mentioned the fine print. The thing I would love to know, Pack visited Ohio State and Purdue as well. What were their contract offers, for lack of a better term? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about that competition. Are there schools right now that aren't offering anything? And what is their success rate against programs that are? Um, or is it coming down to dollars, right? Are you going to have guys who say, I really like this coaching staff in this school, but School B offered more uh, over more years, whatever it is, more, more, <laughs> a better car. Um, we may never know under the current format, but I'm fascinated to know, like, are we having bidding wars at this point? Um, you know, are, are these just enticements or is it flat out? Do, do these guys come back and say, hey, look, I've been offered this by this school. Can you beat it? Um not where I think anyone wanted to see college athletics go, certainly not this quickly, uh, but here we are, and, and, and it's it's part of the world we cover and something I think we're going to have to get used to. No question. And, and by the way, if I'm Nigel Pack and I'm making 400 large mm. a year, I don't need the car, man. I'm, I'm Ubering <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. I'm not driving. Are you kidding me? 400 grand. I might have myself a driver. Yeah. Right. And a little hat and a nice coat and uh, Alfred from from uh, the Batman series. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll go that route. Oh, I'm with you. It's uh, and so we're clear. I don't think either of us are begrudging pack for, hey, take what you can get. Oh, no. You know, these athletes have been, for lack of a better term, exploited for a long time. It's mm-hmm. a multi-million dollar business that they were never uh, given a share of. Um, again, a lot of concerns, though, that it tipped so quickly. Um to really the wild, wild west here, which is, is alarming. Very. Well, David, before we get out of here, our, our thoughts and are with the James oh, Madison University softball program. I'm glad you said it. Yeah, Lauren Burnett, uh, a member of their College World Series team, uh, she passed away at 20. The school hasn't shared details of her story, but uh, her teammates certainly took to Twitter and, and, and shared um, you know, their love for her, their thoughts, their shock. Um, you know, one of them, them tweeting about being roommates on the last road trip together and how um, happy and, and great those memories and moments were. So uh, our, our thoughts are with the JMU University softball program. David, I know um, that's a school that matters a lot to you as well. 
Well, it's a it, it's a community that matters to you as well, Mike, because you know you lived there for many years, as did I when I was a student, and you could tell that from from the social media posts yesterday that this hit hard, and that that community is is grieving, and the uh, the the call for vigilance when it comes to mental health was loud and clear from that community yesterday. And we talked about it earlier uh, with, with, with young college athletes. Uh, that is such an important piece these days as athletic directors and coaches care for these young men and women. And they absolutely have to be uh, so, so aware of that component. Well said. So uh, listen to each other. Be there for each other. Thanks for listening to us today. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next time.